Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for October 16th, 2022 is called Be Wary of the Path Before You. The speaker is Shannon Barrowcliff, and it was recorded on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. For those of you who don't know me, and hi there on the podcast and all the Facebook Live stuff, um, my name is Shannon Barrowcliffe, and I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. So it's the middle of October, and you all know what that means. Pumpkin spice lattes, crunching leaves, crisp weather, and corn mazes. As a born and bred SoCal native, I didn't have the opportunity to wander endlessly, aka get lost, in corn mazes, so I find them quite thrilling. In the past, or in fact, this past weekend, I was able to partake in my second ever corn maze with my two-year-old niece, who quite frankly had no interest. So now for the kids out there. Okay, there's lots of kids, kids back there. I have, I've got a few questions for you. By show of hands, who has ever attempted a corn maze before? I love it, Leah. I love the adult participation too. You know what, everyone. Who's ever participated in a corn maze? Pretty fun, huh? Maybe not back there. Okay, we got a few back there. Okay, who has successfully navigated a corn maze? That's exciting because you wouldn't be here if you didn't. (laughs) Now, for those of you who were successful, and I mean you're like, yes, I was successful. I didn't just get lucky. I need to know what was your strategy, like legitimately. Here we go. Anyone have a strategy? Turn right. <laughs> all right, all right. So we just have we're just turning right. Perfect, perfect. Well, um, so okay, Luke. Question for you then. Did this wisdom come to you on your own, or was it handed down? Wisdom, generation, generational wisdom, handed down to you. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. So let me tell you how my adventure went last weekend. I'm visiting up. I'm, I'm up visiting my sister in Nebraska. And before we head out to this pumpkin patch slash hayride slash corn ride adventures, corn maze adventures, we're on a call with my brother-in-law's uh, parents, the weekly FaceTime between Hazel, my niece, and her grandparents. Upon hearing of our soon-to-be outing, Yu-Yu, who's my brother-in-law Tyler's mom, asked me to take them in the other room, you know, pick up the FaceTime, let's go. She's going to tell me the secret to completing a corn maze. Right? Right? This is exciting. She claims that this secret is so accurate that if I heed her instruction, the rest of the family will be in awe of my corn mazing solving prowess. Right? Sounds pretty good, right? Right, right? Well, I'm hooked and I'm all in. This woman and her family have been farmers for generations. I've been to the farm. It's massive to my SoCal eyes, filled with potatoes, corn, combines, soybeans, and some very fat farm dogs. To say that I trust UU completely is an understatement. Why would I ever question the experience? Well, I bet you all know where this is going. (laughs) Tyler and I team up. He already knows the deeply held family secret. We decide to take Hazel and we'll casually race my sister and dad to the finish line. We'll even give them a head start. We're very generous. So with Hazel on his shoulders, we're off. We follow the wisdom to a T until Hazel wants to divert from the plan. But I'm no quitter, so I forge ahead, even picking up the pace. 
I'm going to do you, you proud. But I've been to this spot before and this one. <laughs> so what's going on? I eventually run into my dad and sister, who do not seem to be going in circles. Slight panic ensues, and I finally just decide to join them, right? Abandoning my secret and shouting out to Tyler and Hazel, wherever they may be, you're on your own. Um, after more time than I'd like to admit, we come upon a way to exit the maze, which has clearly been made by panic guests. After some debate, we take the high road and forge on. We're no quitters. Um, a few minutes later, um, after following my dad's instincts, we escape. A few minutes after that, Tyler, with Hazel still blissfully happy on his shoulders, um, make it out of the cheater's path. We all celebrate. But what happened? Yu Yu, in all her endless wisdom, assumed that this corn maze would be designed like all the corn mazes she's ever known. She assumed that this maze, um, would be designed with plenty of dead ends, not endless loops. She presumed, she spoke truth, she was wrong, and so was I. Now, I bet you're wondering how this long-winded story, you knew how it was gonna end five minutes ago, uh, relates to Second Peter. Well, let's dig into the text to find out. So starting in Second Peter 2. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will infiltrate your midst with destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the master who bought them. As a result, they will bring swift destruction on themselves. Let's stop here. If you've heard me speak before, you may have noticed I prefer to read the entire passage through, but I can't do that this morning. We'll probably stop a lot today, so I just need you to bear with me. In this first verse alone, we need to immediately discuss three words that from personal experience have taken on a completely new meaning in our Western evangelical world. The first two are false prophets and false teachers. I want to quickly distinguish between the two since Peter does use them both. According to Strong's Concordance, the Greek translation of false prophet is one who, acting the part of a divinely inspired prophet, utters falsehoods under the name of divine prophecies. Quick side note, Prophecy does not mean future telling. It is a, no, a voice from God about like here and now what they need to hear. So, misconception there. In the New Testament, this word is found 11 times. Probably one of the most remembered is from Matthew 7:15, where Jesus warns, Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. Interestingly, the phrase false teacher is only mentioned here in the New Testament. When you see it used in the rest of these verses, know that it's an English translation decision rather than the Greek word or literal transla translation. They're trying to do it for clarity. The most obvious distinction between these two phrases is that a prophet considers their message to be divinely inspired or God-inspired, while a teacher is a propagator of erroneous Christian doctrine. I think it's important for us to understand that there is a difference and then I read verse 1 as Peter recognizing that we have a higher probability of encountering a false teacher rather than a false prophet. But it's good to understand, just have that distinction. The last word I want to focus on before we move forward is the word heresy. Show of hands, when you hear the word heresy or heretic, 
The word has an immediate negative connotation. A majority of you. Yep, me too. A really bad one. For me, I have come to understand and feel that it's basically the worst word um, you could use to describe a Christian. Used to say that not only does that person not believe in the basic tenets of Jesus, but they are actively working to corrupt others into believing the false doctrine. I imagine it being similar to that of the witch trials in the 1600s, where um, typically women were paraded around town labeled as a witch whenever something happened that the townsfolk couldn't explain. No real evidence, just fear. Well, I had the unfortunate experience of being on the near receiving end of the word, this threat. My friend and I were attempting to use a church's building to host a class that we were teaching. At the time, we were members of this church. The class would be under the ministry that my friend had started, which on the website had an overview of who was welcome, both to attend and to teach. The language was clear. All are welcome. This ended up being the main reason why the church uninvited us from using the building. We met with an elder of the church, someone we have known and been in small groups for nearly 10 years, to discuss this cancellation, and he ultimately called my friend a heretic. Because my friend, and by extension me, held the belief that not only members of the LGBTQ community can teach the Bible, but that we didn't actively condone their lifestyle, he considered us to be heretical. To say the experience, especially for my friend, was traumatic is an understatement. It has irrevocably changed our relationship with the idea of leadership in the church, general church structure, um, and our relationship with Jesus. To this day, the word causes me so much pain and discomfort. Um, it's so much so that I didn't want to teach on this, <laughs> this passage. I really tried to give it up. Uh, they wouldn't let me. <laughs> so let's correct these misconceptions. In its original meaning, heresy isn't specifically negative. It's like the concept of money, right? Money in and of itself is not bad or evil or even good. But what you do with money can be. Strong's Concordance has a few definitions of the Greek word. Remember, we're going back to the original language. The most clear cut is this. A body of men following their own tenets, sect, or part. Britannica explains it this way. The Greek word heresis, which the word heresy is derived, was originally a neutral term that signified merely the holding of a particular set of philosophical opinions. It was only once, the, the, only once Christianity appropriated the word that it took on its now nefarious tone. Once the church, and I'm talking like old church, right, started to regard itself as the custodian of a divinely imparted revelation, which it alone was authorized to expound under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the word took on its present day inflection. The term was used to describe anyone who held a different interpretation other than the official one. But who has the official interpretation, especially today? Since the term heretic is now widely understood to be that of a negative connotation, it's imperative for us to understand the power the word has to hurt others and cause isolation from the faith. I encourage each of us to never use the term lightly and question when you hear it spoken, as it's most likely used in an incorrect and damaging way. So let's go ahead and continue on in the text, starting in verse 2. And many will follow their debauched lifestyles. Because of these false teachers, 
the way of truth will be slandered, and in their greed they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not sitting idly by. Their destruction is not asleep. When I originally started to prepare for this chapter, I wondered where the hope was in these words. Overall, it's not a cheery, happy-go-lucky chapter that you want hanging over your mantle. I believe the hope comes in verse 3. Peter reminds us that we aren't expected to destroy these false teachers. God is in charge of all the, uh, of all the judgment and condemnation, not us. Peter continues on in verse 4, giving examples of how God has rendered justice in the past. So bear with me. This is an incredibly long run-on sentence. There was no grammar, no original. So here we go. Starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell and locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood on an ungodly world, and if he turned to ashes the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, when he condemned them to destruction, having appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man in anguish over the debauched lifestyle of lawless men, for while he, was li- while he lived among them day after day, the righteous man was tormented in his righteous soul uh, by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and to reserve the unrighteous for punishment at the day of judgment, especially those who indulge their fleshly desires and who despise authority. Oh, well, I told you. (laughs) Let me read verse 9 again. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and to reserve the unrighteous for punishment and the day of judgment. I have a lot of conflicting emotions about the ideas of punishment, but we should have such hope that the Lord will rescue us. What we have to wrap our minds and hearts around is that the rescue probably won't look like or uh, when we want it to be happen, right? But the Lord never abandons us. We have so many examples throughout the text of this, and we cling to this hope. So we're nine verses in to this chapter, and I've got to say, I don't feel like Peter <laughs> is very concise with his words, um, with how these prof- uh, or he's not concise, concise or descriptive about how these false teachers will look. Peter has noted that they will exploit with deceptive words, and they will infiltrate your myths with false heresies, but not a single description about how tall they'll be, what their Twitter handle is, um, <laughs> or what exactly what event leads them to become a false teacher. And that's the challenge we face today. Um, discerning what a false teacher looks like requires a lot of patience and reflection on our part. While Peter doesn't describe what the person will look like, he does describe what their actions or the consequences of their words could look like. Let's read on, picking up from verse 9. Brazen and insolent, they are not afraid to insult the glorious ones. Yet even angels, who are much more powerful, do not bring a slanderous uh, judgment against them in the presence of the Lord. But these men, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, do not understand whom they are insulting. And consequently, in their destruction, they will be destroyed. 
suffering harm as the wages for their harmful wage, ways. Excuse me. By considering it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight, they are stains and blemishes, indulging their deceitful way, pleasures when they feast together with you. Their eyes, full of adultery, never stop sinning. They entice unstable people. They have trained their hearts for greed, these cursed children. Again, what? Just some, this is just great verses. So happy on a Sunday morning. So here Peter writes a few phrases that I believe are imperative to understanding better what a false teacher looks like. He says they take pleasure in indulging in their deceitful ways. They entice unstable people and have their hearts trained for greed. I like how the message puts verse 14. They're obsessed with adultery, compulsive in sin, seducing every vulnerable soul they come upon. Their specialty is greed, and they're experts at it, dead souls. The idea of seducing every vulnerable soul is a key indicator of a false teacher. But there are a few pitfalls or traps people who find themselves in the position of the vulnerable soul will face. Either they've fallen so far into the seduction, the promise, that they can't rationally see what's happened. They adopt the language and behavior without question, or they can't question. Or they've realized what's happened, but what it takes to get out from the seduction, from the situation, has, cost, has a cost that's too great. Let me give you an example that illustrates this deception, greed, and entrapment quite well. Has anyone heard of Dr. John Romulus Brinkley before? Okay, have fun later when you look him up. But I'm going to give you a, give you a semi-quick synopsis of him. So Dr. Brinkley started practicing medicine in 1912 after successfully buying, yes, I said buying, his certificate from Kansas City Eclectic Medical University. Times were way different back then. It's wild. <laughs> Brinkley had great ambitions to be both a wealthy man and a well-known physician, regardless of any proper medical training. In 1918, he opened up a practice in Kansas where he soon realized that there was an opportunity to help individuals with low energy and infertility, conditions seldom discussed out loud due to embarrassment and social taboos. Remember, this is the early 1900s. The pitch was simple pay a lot of money to Dr. Brinkley, and he would surgically implant the organs of a high-energy animal to cure their misfortune. No other doctor was offering any type of proven methods to help this ailment. These men and women were desperate, so they turned to Brinkley. Can you guess if it worked? The average Joe on the street believed that the surgeries were a success, for who wanted to admit that they spent their life savings on a treatment that didn't actually work. And because no one could admit the actual outcome, Dr. Brinkley grew increasingly successful. To grow his business and pockets, um, Brinkley got really creative about spreading his message for the time. He was a pioneer in newspaper advertisements, direct mail campaigns, getting praise from powerhouse newspapers like the Los Angeles Times, and then finally radio semi-happy story. Eventually, the American <laughs> Medical Board grew suspicious and attempted to stop Dr. Brinkley's charlatan ways. But Brinkley couldn't let the power, the money, or the fame, and his ambitions only grew, or couldn't let them go, so his ambitions only grew. He packed his bags for northern Mexico, where he set up a new radio station that was so powerful it could reach almost every household in America. 
um, talk about a powerful megaphone here, right? Brinkley would eventually be considered the pioneer of talk radio, continuing to influence his listeners in all sorts of topics, including medicine and politics, and continue to swindle people out of their money through his schemes. Brinkley is a beautifully clear example of what a false teacher looks like, albeit without the lens of religion. He preyed on the fear and desperation of people who wanted children or better energy to manipulate them into buying a service that didn't work. He understood that people couldn't talk about or ask questions about what was really happening out of embarrassment. He was even able to convince governors and other powerful political figures to look the other way because of how much money he was bringing into the state, all while people's lives were literally being destroyed. Peter continues to describe how these deceitful individuals act and the consequences they can expect for their deception, repercussions that we're not called to enact, but we know God will fulfill. So let's continue in verse 15. By forsaking the right path, they have gone astray. Because they followed the way of Balaam, son of Bosar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, yet was rebuked for his own transgression, a dumb donkey speaking with a human voice restrained the prophet's madness. These men are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm for whom the utter depths of darkness have been reserved. For by speaking high sounding but empty words, they are able to entice with fleshly desires and with debauchery people who have just escaped uh, from those who reside in error. Although these false teachers promise such people freedom, they themselves are enslaved to immorality. For whatever a person succumbs to, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the filthy things of the world through the rich knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they again get entangled in them and succumb to them. Their last state has become worse, worse for them than their first. For it would be, have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn back from the holy commandments that have been delivered to them. They are illustrations of this true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing herself, wallows in the mire. N.T. Wright sums up this last, these last handful of verses quite well. He writes, Peter is doing his best to warn his readers, who might well be in a moral muddle as they try to navigate their way as Christians in a swirling world of competing ideals and ideas about the real dangers they face. It isn't simply a matter of people who are basically all right but get one or two things wrong. They, there are seriously dangerous people out there and you have to learn how to recognize them. The question then is how do we recognize these false teachers? I'm so thankful that here at Grace we utilize an entire um, team a teaching team to wrestle with this text. Admittedly, I was struggling to figure out how to answer this question earlier this week. In my opinion, Leah had the best response. Shout out, Leah. <laughs> she described it like this. It's about the teacher rather than the teaching. They have genuinely deceptive practices and become just a megaphone who thrives off the power they receive from their position, not necessarily their message. There is no discipleship relationship or ability for followers to question. It's one directional. Even with this distilled answer, the skill of recognizing a false teacher seems difficult. 
in his commentary on the above verses, N.T. Wright provided the truth that it's difficult to hear. He writes, we ought to read this list, not with a self-righteous pride. Oh, yes, look at those wicked people. Not at all like us. It's my interpretation. But with appropriate sorrow and fear. These tendencies are present in all of us. The point of self-control is to keep them back, to crucify wrong desires and grow right ones in their place. Laura from the teaching team summed this up beautifully. There is a low chance anyone on Sunday becomes a false teacher, but we all have a good chance of following a false teacher. Throughout this chapter, Peter does two things. He warns us about false prophets and the many ways that they operate, preying on the vulnerable and leading corrupted lifestyles. And he also offers us hope that God knows of their deceitful ways and will correct them the way God deems appropriate, not us. We aren't called to render judgments or even bring down their schemes. As verse 2 says, their condemnation pronounced long ago is not sitting idly by. Their destruction is not asleep. We have hope in Jesus and trust that the words of 2 Peter 2 will be fulfilled, albeit in a way we don't know or understand. What we are called to do is recognize those with a proverbial megaphone to discern for ourselves if their words and actions align with Jesus. Like Leah said, is it about the message or the messenger? And what we do, and what do we do when we find ourselves in a close relationship with someone we believe is following a false teacher? There are so many ex examples around us today. It won't be hard to find someone, and it may be you that would fall under someone else's unrighteous influence. It's interesting that Peter doesn't describe these steps, so we must look to how Jesus would have handled the situation. I believe the first thing Jesus would, uh, would, be, would do would be to show compassion to this person who has fallen prey. Come alongside someone and sit with them. Don't tell them that they're wrong. Like the patients of Dr. Brinkley a century ago, they might be followers because they have invested too much to back out. Their community may now be rooted in this perspective, this leader. And if that was taken away from them suddenly, how could they stand firmly? Showing someone compassion and love rather than condemnation, I believe, is the critical first step. I doubt, I don't, and I doubt anyone else here, has the playbook with how to deal with false teachers or someone who falls victim. But let's hold fast to the truth that we're all human. Deserving of love and respect, God will take care of the rest. As I ask the worship team to come back up, I want to revisit my misadventure in the court maze last weekend. Obviously, UU is in no way a false teacher, but this experience did nicely illustrate how easily I will listen to another who I perceive as having a more knowledge or a better way um, than myself. I didn't have the courage to ask questions of UU before I left. I didn't trust myself to make a judgment call sooner when I realized I was going in circles. I literally probably went into 10 circles before abandoning it. Like, I'm not kidding you. But to me, this, this shows how susceptible we can be to false teachers. It also illustrates just how complicated our walks of faith can be, as well as corn mazes. Be wary of the paths before you, but know that Jesus is there by your side. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. 
You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.